Good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing well this morning. For those of you I don't know, my name's Todd. I'm really glad that you're here this morning and uh, you've taken time out of your schedule. You're, I'm sure for many of you, your busy summer schedule to, uh, to be with us and to be here uh, in this place this morning. And if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Psalm chapter 62. If you don't have your Bibles, the words will be up on the screen and uh, you can follow along today as we continue in this series uh, that we are in throughout the summer. And uh, uh, we have entitled it uh, Selah or Selah, which is the word that appears in the book of Psalms, and uh, we often wonder why it's there. And so we've taken that word that appears 71 times in the book of Psalms and really developed a a series around it because to the best of of our knowledge, that word essentially means to, to pause and to calmly consider. And so uh, what a great thing to do throughout the summer. What a great thing to do uh, as we take a look at just selected psalms. And so far, uh, we're in week five of this series, and we've taken a look at how we respond to who God is and what he's done. Uh, We've taken a look on Father's Day at a father's instruction. We took a look at the idols that we have in our lives. And then last week, we talked about trusting God over people and politics, and political systems, and systems of this world. And we talked about how we need to have the idea of in God I trust as followers of Christ. And so today, we come to this great psalm that's, a, that's really kind of a, a song of victory, a song really of, of praise that David wrote. And, and so far in these psalms that we've looked at, David has only written a, a handful of them. And so David, although he wrote most of the book of Psalms, uh, there are other authors. And today we're going to be looking at, I think, one of his most victorious, God-focused songs of all of the Psalms. Now, um, be- before we dive into this, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of context because the context uh, around this psalm is really of vital importance. In fact, you really can't understand anything about the psalm until you understand the context in which David wrote this and and how he was inspired by God's Holy Spirit to write it. And this is a psalm that essentially is about waiting. Now, uh, I don't know about you. uh, I don't like to wait. And if you're a person in here who likes to go to a grocery store and wait in line, or if you like to be out on 278 and you really enjoy being in traffic, and you really love it when someone from Ohio cuts you off and goes the wrong way in the roundabout. Sorry, Ohio. Uh, <laughs> um, it's true. You guys do it, and we love you. Thank you for being here. We really thank you for spending your money on our island. We're so thankful for that. Anyway, I'm totally kidding. I have roots that go back to Ohio. But anyway, um, we, um, we really, uh, you know, hate waiting. In fact, I think the place that probably highlights this fact the most is a little place down um, just a little bit southeast of Orlando called Disney World. Because they say that Disney World is the happiest place on earth, don't they? And I think there's two people in life, two different kinds of people in life. There's the kind of person in life that believes that Disney World is the happiest place on earth. And then there's the rest of us. And I got thinking about the fact that um, Disney World is the happiest place on earth if it weren't for the crowds and the fact that you have to delay your retirement to go there by years. 
and the heat, uh, which often is just terrible, as bad as it is here in South Carolina, I promise you, I was born in Florida, it, it, it's nothing compared to uh, Florida, Central Florida, but the, the most horrifying thing about Disney World is the fact that you have to wait to have fun, don't you? You have to wait to have fun. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a great place, but what would it be like if we didn't have to wait? And, and I, I, as I was thinking about today's message uh, over the past couple weeks, I got thinking about that. What would it be like in life if we didn't have to wait? What would it be like in our lives if we didn't have to wait? We, we are instructed from the moment that we breathe life into our lungs. We're taught to wait. At an early age, we're taught the difference between no and not yet. <laughs> and sometimes um, we never really learn the difference between no and not yet. Rick Warren says, every cent of debt you can attribute to the fact that we want to have instant gratification. And that is so true, isn't it? We have debt because we don't like to wait. And so life as we, we experience it, all of life um, we see wait. We wait to get into school. And then once we're in school, we can't wait to get out of school, right? We, we wait for the change of a season. We're in the midst of summer and it's hot and it's humid and we can't wait until fall gets here. And then fall gets here and it gets a little too cold. It dips below 60 degrees here and we can't wait for summer to come again. <laughs> We're spoiled around here, aren't we? We wait for life to come into this world. We wait nine months for life to come into this world. And we wait for lives to come into our home, and then we can't wait till they leave. And we wait 18 years or more until they leave, right? Not my kids, Sean and Sydney. You guys are awesome. Stay in our house forever. Okay, no, just kidding about that. Waiting is... <laughs> Waiting is um, a part of life, but it can be excruciating. And depending on the subject of, of why we're waiting, it can be um, something that is, is turmoil in our lives. And I realize that some of you walked into this building on this day, and you're waiting for something that you're in turmoil over. You're waiting for an answer to a job. You're waiting to find out if you got into that school. You're waiting to find out what's going to happen in the midst of a relationship that has completely been ripped apart. You're waiting for that lab result to come back. And waiting sometimes can be utterly excruciating. Waiting in life and waiting on God are two entirely different things. And I wonder what it would be like if we as Christ followers can really truly understand that there's a difference in waiting for just the stuff of life and waiting on God. Because one is incredibly irritating and frustrating and it can be, and we can find ourselves in utter turmoil. But I think as we're going to see today, the other option, waiting on God, 
can lead us to a place even in the midst of our turmoil where we can find joy and we can find refuge and we can find safety. Well, today we're going to look at the Psalm 62 and we've got to understand the context. We have to understand where this came from. And so the context of Psalm uh, 62 is King David and his son Absalom. Now, um, David's, David and his kids, uh, if you really read the Bible, David and his children are, are, are a very interesting bunch. I, I mean, it is like full of drama and trouble and tribulation. He and his wives and his children, particularly his sons. And in fact, if you search scripture, it's interesting because David had uh, many wives, the Bible says, um, and eight are mentioned in scripture. Five are only mentioned one time. Five of those wives are mentioned one time. Three of them have the predominant place, and that's Michael and Abigail and, of course, Bathsheba. And, and you know, some of you are sitting there probably right now wondering, well, okay, wait a minute, why did David have so many wives, like that whole thing? That is a subject for a different day, okay? Just telling you right there. It's a whole different sermon, whole different sermon series probably. But David, David had dozens of children, and the most predominant children are Solomon, Nathan, um, uh, um, Adonijah, Tamar, um, Amnon, and Absalom. And Psalm 62, as well as a couple other psalms, are written from the place that David was going through while he waited for something to be resolved in the life of, um, of, of Absalom. And it's an interesting story that we find um, all throughout 2 Samuel. In fact, um, 2 Samuel, if you want to do some further research, 2 Samuel 13 to about 18 or 19 tells the story of David and Absalom. Now, Absalom was David's um, third son. And um, the story, if I were to, I don't have enough time, but if I were to tell the whole story of, of Absalom and Amnon and Tamar, you would literally, like if you've never heard the story before, you would think he's not telling a story from the Bible. It is clear that like someone, there's a, like a writer from Hollywood wrote this screenplay for this terrible family situation that happened. It is an absolute mess. It's a hot mess. And so what happens is, is there's a conflict that I'm not going to go into, but there's this conflict, and Absalom, who's the younger brother of Amnon, ends up killing Amnon. And, of course, David and, and Absalom then, then be, begin to have a very difficult relationship because uh, uh, he is killed, uh, Absalom has killed his older brother, um, and he may have been justified in, in that, but probably not because God tells us clearly that that's wrong. And so David and Absalom um, really be, find themselves in a place where, like, Absalom goes away. He, he, he goes to another place. David rejects him. Um, they're for a, a long period of time. They're separated. They don't talk to each other for a long period of time. And, and they find themselves estranged in this series of really horrific events that happens in the king's home. But David loved, loved Absalom. He forgave him. And eventually, there came a period of time where, where they were restored. And their relationship was, was restored. But just for a little bit, a bit of reconciliation came. And, and as soon as the reconciliation came, um, Absalom turns on King David, his dad. Now, the Bible is very clear in 2 Samuel that Absalom was a, a, an extremely uh, handsome, um, like rough, kind of a man's man kind of guy. Um, he, he had long, flowing hair. 
And evidently, the women were very attracted to that. The, the picture I have, and I can't get it out of my mind when I read 2 Samuel uh, of Absalom, is Fabio. <laughs> That's the picture I have, all right? So he was a very attractive person. He had great charisma. He, he was someone that people really enjoyed being with and, and liked. And, and, and so Absalom looked at King David, his father, and realized that um, in his like type A, like strong, strong, strong personality, realized that David, as the king, had a lot of weaknesses. And he preyed upon those weaknesses. And 2 Samuel tells us that Absalom would stand early in the morning. He'd get up early in the morning, and as people would come to see, he would stand by the gates of Jerusalem. And as people would come to see his dad, King David, he would stop them. And he would say, hey, is King David meeting your needs? Is he solving your problem? problems? Are you satisfied with the answer that he's given? And in most cases, the answer to that, those questions would be no, no, and no. And Absalom said, I can solve all your problems. King David's not doing it, so I can do it. And as time went on, Absalom began to get this following. And the following grew, and it grew, and it grew. And one day, David woke up and realized that his son Absalom had essentially created a coup. He wanted to be the king. Now, you talk about a wayward child. That's the ultimate act of betrayal, isn't it? It's betrayal like, and insurrection. It's denial at the, the, the greatest, to the greatest degree. His own son rose up and tried to take over his rightful God-given position as king. And as things go in families, it escalated. It ended up turning into a war. And Absalom died in the war. And Psalm 62, as well as a few other psalms, is written in the midst of David's turmoil about what's going on in his family. And just to get a glimpse of that turmoil, you can see in 2, um, 2 Samuel 15.30, after he it said that he's waiting on things to get resolved, essentially, in the verses before it, it says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he, as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads as they went up, weeping as they went. David was in turmoil, waiting, waiting for his kingdom to be restored, waiting for his son to be restored, waiting to be reunited with his family and his kingdom because he left Jerusalem, he and his, his followers left Jerusalem because they feared for their lives. This is over the period of four years. It wasn't something that just happened over the period of months. And so we find David in the midst of this turmoil of waiting for things to be resolved. And inspired by God's Holy Spirit, he writes these words in Psalm 62. Check this out. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Verse 2. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. 
I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a, lean, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse Salah. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. It's a repeat of the first two verses. And then in verse 8, he says this, or excuse me, yeah, in verse uh, 7, he says this. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Now look at verse 8. He does something interesting in verse 8. He transitions from this personal cry, this personal song, he transitions that to being something about the people of Israel. And he's trying to take his experience of being in this turmoil of waiting and trusting in God, and he's trying to teach the people of Israel something. He says this, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, don't miss this. Please don't miss this. He says, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render a man according to his work. Waiting in line at a grocery store at Disney World or in traffic on 278 is irritating. Waiting for an answer to something simple can be frustrating. But when we're waiting for the answer to something important in life, when we're waiting for the resolution to a situation that has absolutely absolutely captured every bit of our lives that involves our family or our livelihood or the things that matter most to us, that can be waiting in turmoil, just like David finds himself in. And the difference, there's a difference between waiting and waiting on God. And the thing that I love about Psalm 62 is you can tell that David is in this place where he gets it. He gets it, and that's not always the case. Just 20 chapters earlier in Psalm 42, a psalm that was written in the same very year that this was written about, about the same very thing, he's, he's, he's fighting with God. He's wrestling with God. He's, he's crying out in this tension and this frustration, and here we see that David, in the midst of his tribulation, he finds solace. I think the thing that we can learn from David here is what he does while he waits. Um, what we do while we wait on an answer that's vitally important, critical in our lives, um, really says everything about who we believe God is. We can, we can rely on other things. We can rely on worry or anxiety 
or despair and depression. We can rely on things that captivate our hearts and our minds and our lives. We can rely on addictions and things that help give us comfort in the meantime. And David here tells us and he challenges us to rely on God. And I want you to notice that in this passage, there's been no resolution to the situation. David is writing this in the midst of the turmoil of waiting. He received no resolution to his waiting. In fact, he doesn't know it when he's writing this, but his son eventually dies in the very battle that they're fighting. He wrote Psalm 62 in the midst of this waiting. And as we see here, he's got so many more enemies than he has friends. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of waiting, I feel like I have so many more enemies than I have friends. And that may be perceived or it may be reality, but it's the truth. From David's victorious psalm, I think we can find what we should do while we wait. Instead of turning to those things that give us comfort, worry, and anger, and addictions, and sin, Psalm 62 gives us a formula. And I think David clearly communicates what we're to do when we're waiting on God. The first thing I think we need to do is to be silent before God. He repeats verse 1 again in verse 6. And he says, my soul waits in silence. And I think that sometimes what we need to do when, when we're waiting on God is to, to ha- have a sense of silence for the moment. Because when we're talking, when our head is spinning, when we're trying to solve the, 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 the problem ourselves, when we're trying to find an answer for the, for the waiting that we're experiencing, sometimes we can fill our, our lives and our souls with so much noise that we cannot hear from God. I believe that David gives us the great way to be able to hear an answer from God in the midst of our waiting. And that is first and foremost, we stop and we be silent. But I love the contrast because in verse 1 and in verse 6, we see his silence. But then in verse 8, he says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. And I think the second thing that we do is once we've gotten silent before God, we have to pour our lives out. We have to be vocal with God. We talked a little bit about that last week. David, over and over again in the Psalms, just pours out his emotion and his turmoil and his praise and the victory to God. But the first thing he did is he got silent. Once he got silent, once he could hear from God, then he began to pour out his heart from God. And so learning to wait on God means that we're silent before God, that we're vocal with God, and that finally we're patient while we wait on God. This is not the fun part at all. If silence is difficult for you, if being verbal with God is difficult for you, the last part is the most difficult for all of us. And that is we wait on his answer to come. Now, I realize there are some of you that are, are I, I know what you're saying. You're, you're type A, and you're self-made men and women, and you're like, wait a minute, I don't like all this waiting on God stuff. Seems like laziness to me. I don't want to wait. I want to solve the problem myself. I get that. I get that. But there's a massive difference between waiting on God 
and just being lazy. There's a huge difference between waiting on God and just being, being lazy. The great English um, evangelist said this. I love this. He said, waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. I've been guilty of that a time or two. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of our effort. Waiting for God means first, activity under command. Second, readiness for a new command that may come. And third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. And I think verse 8 is critical in this passage because in verse 8, David outlines what our, our culture tells us to do in the midst of waiting, in the midst of this turmoil of waiting for an important answer. Our culture tells us to jump and react at the first answer that comes our way. Now, God may tell you to jump. Once you've been silent, once you've been vocal, and once you've patiently waited on him, he may provide the answer, and he may tell you to jump. But I think more times than not, God's way and his answer usually doesn't come quickly because he knows that we grow in the waiting. He knows better what we need than we know ourselves, and the waiting is what may make us stronger. It's the waiting that may be the answer in and of itself. It's finding how we can trust God in the midst of waiting for the answer to arrive. I don't know about you, but um, we have a microwave in our house, and of course, you hear about my grill just about every week, so we have a grill. We have an oven, we have a range, just like everybody else does. Nothing really tasty and good ever comes from the microwave, does it? I mean, when's the last time that you've been like, that was a great meal? <laughs> After three minutes in the ding of a bell. Takes time, doesn't it? A grill, an oven, a crock pot. We live in a society that screams at us, Take the microwave answer. And I believe God has a better answer, and he has a warning for us. David has a warning for us in verse 8. It says, trust in him at all times, people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge. And then in verse 9, he says this, those of lowest state are but a breath. Those of highest state, a delusion. <laughs> in the balance, they go up. They are all together lighter than a breath. But check this out in verse 10. Here's where the rubber meets the road. He says, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. David is telling us to wait patiently on God's answer in the midst of our trouble and in the midst of our turmoil. And I believe that he's telling us to not be people who act impulsively and impatiently. And I don't know about you, but that is extremely hard for me. Because in the midst of turmoil, if I see the first answer and it looks good to me, and it looks good to the world, and it makes sense, it's logical, I jump impulsively on that answer. And if God's provided it, great. 
If God leads you that way, great. But I think the easy answer sometimes leads us to a place that we don't trust God. The easy answer is always attractive. The easy answer hurts others and benefits you. The easy answer is easy to choose. But it's often not God's answer. Warren Wearsby said this, the ability to calm your soul and wait before God is one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. Our old nature is restless. The world around us is frantically in a hurry. But a restless heart usually leads to a reckless life. A restless heart usually leads to a reckless life. David's reminding us that impatient and impulsive choices may cause us to miss God's better answer, his better option, his better choice. So we need to be careful while we're waiting in the midst of turmoil because we see here in Psalm 62 that David finds the answer, and the answer is God and God only. Bible teachers and pastors and theologians call this the only psalm. It's not the only psalm. There's 149 others. But over and over again, David says, my trust is in him only. In him only do I take refuge. So today I want to ask you, what is the subject or person or source of your waiting? What are you right now in turmoil over and waiting for an answer? Is it something financial? Is it a health issue? Is it a wayward child? It certainly can't be as bad as David's. Let's hope not. Is it a career that has gone terribly, terribly awry? Is it a decision that you made years ago that you realize now you're going to have to pay for What's the source of your waiting? If you and I believe that God is in control, if we truly believe that he loves us, if we truly believe that he has our best in mind, then we will wait for God. And as David did, we'll find refuge in him. My prayer today for you is is that you would take that leap from a place where you're trusting in other things to give you comfort, And then in the midst of your waiting, you would trust in God. Would you pray with me this morning? I realize that um, a subject of having patience and waiting often stirs up a lot of emotion because the thing that you may be waiting on right now um, may be something that uh, really kind of the course of your life the future of you and your family or you and your community depends on it. And it may be waiting on a relationship. It may be waiting on some kind of financial resolution. It may be waiting on a job. Uh, students, it may be waiting on, on something at school. It may be something as simple as waiting to find out what grade you got in a class or on a test. It might be waiting to find out where you're going to live Tomorrow. It might be waiting to find out 
if that issue you've had with another person in your life is going to end up in court. And today my challenge to you is, uh, do you trust and believe God enough that he would be your answer in the midst of the turmoil of your waiting, just like David's was? It couldn't have gotten much worse for him. And yes, there were times when he struggled with this very thing. But in the midst of him writing this psalm, this particular song, he got it. He understood what it was all about. And he found, in the midst of his turmoil, he found refuge, it says, a covering, a safe place, a harbor in the midst of the term, turmoil and the trouble. So I want to challenge you this morning in the midst of this time of just being quiet before God. We make that leap. We walk away from all the things that you're used to providing you comfort in the midst of turmoil and in the midst of waiting. And will you trust God? Will you find patience not in yourself and not in your own abilities and not in the human way, but will you truly find it in God? I know from personal experience, it's a lot easier said than done. Maybe you got something going on in your life that you know right now God's not pleased with. And uh, you know in your head it's not right, but your heart's just not there yet. And you're waiting for some kind of resolution in your life to that. There's a spiritual waiting right now that's going on. Do you trust God enough? Do you believe that he loves you and that he cares for you because if you do you can trust him to be your refuge and your strength and David says twice your salvation maybe you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus and you're, you're waiting is this restlessness in your spirit about what happens when you die it's this restlessness of Oh man, I've just, I don't know about this Jesus guy, but maybe something's going on right now in your heart and in your soul. And maybe today you're moving from a place of being in turmoil while you wait. Maybe today it's just accepting Jesus as your Savior. Maybe that's your first step in the process. David says, I found my salvation in God alone. And the Bible says, that he loved you enough. He loved you enough that he sent Jesus, his only son, to die for you. So if you're here today and you never put your salvation in him, what a great day to do that. You don't have to wait anymore on knowing where you're going when you die. The Bible says that Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross was enough to cover your sins. And that when he rose again, when that body was gone out of that tomb, he was with God three days later. That was enough to give us eternity in heaven with God. And so if you're here today and you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to be with him in heaven one day when you die, I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And I just want to invite you to pray it silently to God in your own way, in your own words. The words aren't magic. They don't matter. What matters is your heart. It goes like this. God, thank you for loving me like a child, like your own child. Thank you for sending your son to die for my sin. 
right now, I accept you, Jesus, as my Savior. Now help me to live for you. If you prayed that prayer just in the quietness of this room, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want you to raise your hand. I won't call you up or embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. If you prayed that prayer silently in your own way, awesome. I see a few hands. Hold them up for a moment, please, so I can pray for you. God, I thank you for these few hands that are up. God, I thank you so much that today they put their salvation in you, that they have refuge for eternity. God, I pray that you would help them to be anchored and rooted to you and to your word. And God, I pray that those of us who are already Christ followers, um, God, that you would help us in the source of our waiting, whatever that is, God, that we would move from a place where we're trying to find that solution ourselves to a place where we fully rely on you because you care for us so much and you love us so much. Thank you, Father, for being such a gracious and loving Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.